Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 15, In the Footsteps of Alexander. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you all again for your patience in the release of our last episode. As I mentioned last week, my wife and I are now completely settled, my office is constructed, and I finally have the dedicated space and schedule I need to make this podcast a recurring and consistent one. So you all get big kudos for that. And as a reminder, with the start of the new year, I am looking forward to launching my Titans of History podcast website and all of the graphics and links necessary will be included on it. So again, thank you for your patience with that as well. And as one final reminder, this podcast is now available on all major audio platforms from Spotify to Amazon to iTunes. So if you could, please give us a like and a review if you found this podcast helpful so we can get it trending along with all the other top history podcasts. And thank you as always for your support and patronage. And now let's get on with episode 15. We left off last week with Napoleon's fleet ready to embark on their great crusade across the Mediterranean to the coasts of Egypt to begin their eastern campaign against the British Empire, which to this point in the French Revolution had completely menaced French trade and influence at sea. Now, the Directory and Napoleon both knew that they would be unable to fight a full-fledged naval campaign against the British at sea, and so they decided the best course of action would be to disrupt her trade network with India in the Middle East, namely through Egypt, by establishing a presence there and replacing the hated Mamluks and declining Ottoman Turks. But before Napoleon and his armada were able to land in Egypt, they knew that having a staging and resupply depot on the way as well as a heavy fortified beachhead, would be critical in maintaining a presence in the Mediterranean, especially since the top British ships of the line were patrolling her waters. Which brings us to the first stop on Napoleon's journey, the fortified and island state of Malta. So let's do a little background on Malta and why on earth Napoleon decided to take a stop on over. Malta is a small island nation in the Mediterranean about 50 miles off the southern coast of Sicily, situated strategically between the southern tip of Europe and North Africa, and her location has been fought over for centuries between the various powers that encompass the ancient Mediterranean world. From the Phoenicians to the Romans, from the Greeks to the Arabs, and then the Normans, controlling Malta was of vital importance in the greater geopolitics of the Mediterranean region. And since the mid-16th century, Malta had been ruled by the Knights Hospitaller, commonly known as the Order of St. John, and this period in Maltese history is known as the Knights Period. Now, the Knights were, and technically still are, a medieval and early modern Catholic military order that were founded in 1099 after the Siege of Jerusalem during the First Crusade. A hospital was founded in the city to help care for the sick, the poor, and injured pilgrims to the Holy Land, and after the siege, a religious order was formed by the Crusaders to help protect the hospital. Now, while there was some debate over which sect and which exact hospital were the predecessors to the modern knights, the long and short of it is, this group of Crusaders protecting the hospital became known as the Knights Hospitaller, hence the name. 
Now, the Knights then gained their own papal charter and were charged with defending the Holy Land from the Muslim states. But when they were expelled after the fall of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1291, the Knights eventually found their way to the island of Rhodes. The Knights then came into control of Malta in 1530, when, after they had been expelled from Rhodes following the Ottoman siege in 1522, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V gave the island to them as, essentially, a fiefdom. Now, investing heavily in the infrastructure on the island, the Knights helped to build up the island's defenses, which helped them in repelling the Ottomans in 1565 during the Great Siege of Malta, which we talked about a few episodes back. And indeed, if you've ever seen a photo of modern Malta, it's impossible to look at the island and miss the many major forts that were built throughout the country. Even today, they would pose an impressive defense of the island in the event of a naval attack. But at any rate, following the siege of Malta, the Knights decided to settle in the island permanently, beginning the Maltese Golden Age, which flourished with increasing trade, infrastructure development, and the arts, lasting for over 200 years. But, like all good times, they must end. And by the 1770s, Malta and the Knights were in decline. Now, there were a number of reasons for this, as there often is, but in general, lavish spending by their Portuguese grandmasters in the middle parts of the 18th century led to the country's bankruptcy, leading to the Knights becoming increasingly unpopular with the local population. Now, Malta by this time had also become increasingly reliant on France financially, which, as I'm sure we all know by now, was not a great country to be reliant on for your money in the 1770s and beyond. Now, this was especially true when the French Revolution hit in 1792, when the civilian government of France froze all of their assets in the country, seizing them. This put an even greater burden on the Knights financially, which leads us to where we are in the story today. So Napoleon and Malta, a rising star against a declining, unpopular religious duchy. I wonder how this one is going to turn out. Back in May... Napoleon's fleet left Toulon on their way to Egypt in the largest armada ever to set sail on the Mediterranean. There were 280 ships in all, including 13 ships to the line with between 74 and 118 guns, along with 38,000 soldiers, 13,000 sailors, and 3,000 merchant seamen. Sailing for Italy for resupply, Napoleon's forces landed at Malta on June 9th at 5.30 in the morning off the coast of the capital city, Valletta. Now, Napoleon had ordered the port to be open to his entire fleet for resupply, but the country's ruler, Grandmaster Ferdinand von Homsich Zuburheim, refused, allowing only two to enter at a time as Malta was considered a neutral country. Never one to take no for an answer, though, Napoleon responded in kind. He ordered the bombardment of Valletta and the invasion of the island. On June 11th, the French launched an amphibious assault on seven strategic sites throughout the island, quickly putting it under French control. Now, while they faced some resistance from the local population, the Knights, many of whom were actually French by birth, deserted, leaving little doubt as to the outcome. Not that the city couldn't withstand the French. As we mentioned before, the city was well-equipped to withstand a long, protracted siege, something which wasn't lost to Napoleon or his generals. But with no finances to aid in their defense, and with the Knights' popularity what it was, Bolheim accepted Napoleon's peace terms and surrendered Malta over to the French in exchange for pensions and estates back in France for himself and the rest of the knights on the island. Napoleon then established a garrison of about 4,000 men to fortify the French position under the command of General Vaubois to ensure order, and from here he began his administrative reforms on Malta. In the six days Napoleon spent on Malta, he instituted a governing council, dissolved the monasteries, instituted street lighting, and wrote 14 dispatches regarding the future of the island's administrative structure. 
In them, he abolished slavery, liveries, feudalism, titles of nobility, and restrictions on the Jewish population, even allowing them to build a synagogue when they pleased. Oh, and, of course, he raided the banks and their vaults for what money and jewels the knights had left. Can't leave that part out. But the biggest prize for Napoleon, and France at large, was gaining Malta for essentially nothing. They now not only held a strategic island with which they could help resupply their expeditionary force, they also had a strategic island which was fortified to the gills with heavy guns, batteries, and impenetrable walls. And with the British constantly patrolling the Mediterranean waters, having control of Malta was critical in defending French supply lines to and from the Middle East. But as you'd probably expect, not everyone was happy to be uh, freed from the Knights. Now initially, the Maltese did welcome the French, even cheering as they entered Valletta, ostensibly as liberators, but their welcome quickly waned after the French imposed high taxes and looted what was left of the Maltese treasury. Now this, coupled with the fact that the French did not honor pensions or pay wages, contributed to the economic situation in the island such that it became unbearable for the citizens and completely untenable moving forward. But most of all, it was the French handling of the Catholic Church, where have we heard that before, that really set off the ire of the deeply religious Maltese. Much of the church property was either seized, looted, or both, and then set off to help raise funds for the Egyptian expedition. Now, this blatant disregard for the institutions that had been in Malta for centuries left the general population infuriated at the French, and many would stage an uprising in September of 1798 to protest the French and push for their expulsion. But we'll delve into those events in a later episode. In any event, now with Malta secured and their presence in the Mediterranean established, Napoleon could set his sights on landing in Egypt. Now, the French forces departed Malta and would arrive in Alexandria on July 1st, 13 days after leaving Malta. Now, though it was reported that Napoleon had wanted to land elsewhere, his armada had to deftly evade the British forces under Admiral Nelson for the entire time, at one point coming as close as 20 miles from each other. And Napoleon knew, as did many in his senior command, that even a small skirmish on the open water could lead to a disaster for their land campaign. And so a voyage that likely should have taken only a few days took upwards of two weeks. It was just as well, though, because during the voyage, Napoleon informed his crew of the vastly different world that they were about to enter. While cajoling his men with promises of land after a victorious expedition, he also instructed them to respect the Egyptian people and their customs, and not giving them any reason to declare jihad against the French explorers. As Napoleon put it, quote, The peoples we will be living alongside are Muslims. Their first article of faith is there is no other god but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. Do not contradict them. Treat them as you treated the Jews, the Italians. Respect their muftis and their imams as you respected their rabbis and bishops. Have the same tolerance for the ceremonies prescribed by the Quran, for their mosques, as you had for the covenants, for the synagogues, for the religion of Moses and that of Jesus Christ. The Roman legions used to protect all religions. You will here find different customs to those of Europe. You must get accustomed to them. The people among whom we are going treat women differently to us. But in every country, whoever violates one is a monster. Pillaging only enriches a small number of men. It dishonors us. It destroys our resources. It makes enemies of the people who it is in our interests to have as our friends. The first city we will encounter was built by Alexander the Great. We shall find at every step great remains worthy of exciting French emulation. Then we're back to me. Now these are all great thoughts in theory, but as Napoleon was one to do, the words were pretty hollow. 
And we'll get into all the respect he paid to the imams and citizens of Egypt in the coming episodes. But let's just say that the initial impressions he made on the Egyptians was not exactly flattering. As the French reached Alexandria, Napoleon's men landed on the beach of Marbut, about eight miles away from the city proper. Now, despite his calls for respecting the people and the customs throughout Egypt, the Egyptians were not keen to see another invader landing on their shores, and it was made known to Napoleon that Alexandria planned to resist the French forces. So, he decided to act first and deliver the first blow. General Jacques-François Menou and his forces were the first to set foot on Egyptian soil, followed closely by Napoleon and General Kleber. They then hoisted the French tricolor on the Cove of Marabout in the modern-day citadel of Caipé, and Napoleon then marched onto Alexandria with a force of between four and 5,000 men, when, at 2 a.m. on July 2nd, he sent them off into three separate columns. Menou's column was to attack a triangular fort, Kleber's men were in the center to attack the city head-on, and in the third column, under the command of Louis-André Bon, they were to attack the city gates on the right. Now, the Egyptians were ready, encountered with a small force of about 500 men, but most of them were Janissaries, who, while the elite slave soldiers of the Ottomans, were not well versed with muskets, and they were quickly and decisively defeated. And this will be a persistent theme for the remainder of the episode. After a brief fight, the defenders fled the city, and it was left to French control, with no time left for a surrender. The French lost about 150 men, all of whom were buried under the nearby Pompey's Pillar. Now, this location obviously held significant symbolism for Napoleon. The column was built by Roman Emperor Diocletian between 298 and 302 AD and was given the honorific title through the centuries by Europeans in remembrance of Pompey the Great, but this was likely through a mistranslation of the pillar's official name in Greek. Now, as I'm sure many of us history buffs are aware, Pompey was assassinated as he landed in Egypt in 48 BC after the Battle of Pharsalus by the courtiers of Ptolemy XIII, brother and husband, yes, you heard that correctly, to Cleopatra VII, or as we all know her, just Cleopatra, in their ongoing civil war with Napoleon's idol, Julius Caesar. It's a mouthful, I know, but hey, welcome to history. After pacifying Alexandria, Napoleon set out to make sure that he could leave the city while still maintaining a French presence there. He disarmed the civilians, with the only exceptions being loyal imams, muftis, and sheiks, and he went about trying to gain local support for his campaign against the Mamluks. In a proclamation to the city, Napoleon wrote, quote, For too long the bays who govern Egypt have insulted the French nation and covered their traitors and slanders. The hour of their punishment has come. For too long this horde of slaves bought in the Caucasus in Georgia have tyrannized the most beautiful part of the world. But God on whom all depends, has ordained that their empire shall end. People of Egypt, they have told you that I come to destroy your religion, but do not believe it. Tell them, in reply, that I come to restore your rights, punish the usurpers, and that I respect God, his prophet, and the Quran more than any Mamluk. Tell them that all men are equal before God. Wisdom, talents, virtues are the only things to make one man different from another. Is there a more beautiful land? It belongs to the Mamluks. If Egypt is their farm, then they should sow the lease that God gave them for it. Qadis, sheiks, imams, and notables of the nation, I ask you to tell the people that we are true friends of Muslims. Wasn't it us who destroyed the Knights of Malta? Wasn't it us who destroyed the Pope who used to say that he had a duty to make war on Muslims? Wasn't it us who have at all times been friends to the great Lord and enemies to his enemies? Thrice happy are those who will be with us. They shall prosper in their fortune and in their rank. Happy are those who will be neutral. 
they will get to know us over time and join their ranks with ours. But unhappy, thrice unhappy, are those who shall arm themselves to fight for the Mamluks and who shall fight against us. There shall be no hope for them. They shall perish. Napoleon then ordered the fleet to be taken to Abakir Bay with the strict instructions that it be moored close to shore to be protected from attack, which was smart because the British were rumored to have been spotted outside of Alexandria's waters only 24 hours before. Getting the entire fleet to shore and then on with the land campaign was of critical importance now. Again, engaging the British fleet generally, and Nelson specifically, was a recipe for disaster, and Napoleon wished to avoid it at all costs. He knew that he needed to begin with the land campaign immediately, and so he sent General Darche's columns onwards to Cairo while leaving General Kleber in charge of Alexandria. With his army now on shore and their supply trains ready, Napoleon set off for Cairo at 5 p.m. on July 7th, marching through the moonlit night in the first desert crossing for a modern western army. And it would become apparent that even when prepared, the desert made for a cruel bedfellow. While marching through the night proved all well and good, when the sun appeared on a July summer morning in Egypt, well, that was a different story entirely. The heat made marching unbearable, the sand made hauling cannon through it impossible, and the men suffered through agonizing thirst. Coupled with windy conditions leading to hot sand being thrust into soldiers' eyes, the trek was akin to a death march. The conditions notwithstanding, the French also had to deal with Mamluk and Bedouin raiders who patrolled alongside the French columns at a distance, picking off and killing any stragglers that were unfortunate enough to fall behind. Wells were poisoned, water at trade stops was sold for prices similar to precious metals, and many of the heavy wagons began to sink into the sand, rendering them useless. But Napoleon, even with his men's morale plummeting, was unfazed. When one soldier, no doubt exhausted and literally dying of thirst, called out to Napoleon, quote, well, General, are you going to take us to India like this? Napoleon Riley replied, quote, No, I wouldn't undertake that with soldiers such as you. On July 8th, Napoleon met up with Darche's men at nearby Demenauer, about 15 miles from Alexandria, and the men then marched to Ramane, awaiting the naval fleet with additional provisions, which could be brought to them via the Nile Delta. When they arrived on July 12th, resupplied, the army then continued their march through the night with the fleet following parallel to them. However, Unexpected violent winds forced the fleet to the left of the army on the riverbank and right into an awaiting fleet of Mamluks, Arabs, and sympathetic peasants at the village of Jabris, also known as Shoraki. Now, despite numerical superiority, the surprise attack and unpreparedness of the sailors led the French to lose their gunboats. Napoleon, though, alerted by the gunfire, ordered his land force to charge and attack the village, engaging in fierce fighting with the Mamluk fleet as well as their cavalry. But while surprised, the French discipline and technological superiority were just too much for the Mamluks to handle, who still used spears, javelins, axes, shimitars, and bows and arrows to fight. Napoleon had his men form battalion squares, with the cavalry and baggage trains inside to protect them from raiding. The Mamluks would then circle the squares, sometimes attempting to enter and other times just chucking their weapons in an attempt to dent the lines, but they were absolutely no match for musket fire. Indeed, Contemporary observers of the battle consider the Mamluk offensive tactics to look, quote, ridiculous in comparison to what they faced from the French. And ridiculous or not, they certainly suffered from their outdated weaponry and battle plans, losing between three and 600 men and retreating quickly back to Cairo. With only 20 killed or wounded on the French side, the Battle of Chobrakrit was an overwhelming French victory. But despite their losses, the Mamluk bays were undeterred, believing they would easily crush the French once they did reach Cairo. Quote, let the Franks come, said one. 
We will crush them beneath our horses' hooves. Now, if you remember back to our episode on Josephine, it was right around this time that Napoleon got confirmation of the fact that she was indeed having an affair with Hippolyte Charles. Long suspected, obviously, and referenced to now numerous times, General Junot showed Napoleon letters from Josephine to Charles and also informed him that the affair was news all over Paris. It didn't help matters that the British had also heard the rumors, intercepting messages from Napoleon and his brothers and publishing the rumors throughout their tabloids for the next three years, labeling the little corporal as nothing more than a big cuckold. In other words, as Napoleon was ready to embark on Cairo and the battles that followed, he had to deal with the largest blow to his personal life at the worst possible time. But he had little time to dwell on it, because the Mamluks were about to strike back at the French at the small town of Mbabe, across the Nile River from Cairo. After marching throughout the night, the French had caught up with the Ottoman forces. After being able to rest for only one hour, on July 21st, the Mamluk chieftain Murad Bey appeared with 6,000 Mamluk regulars and 54,000 Arab irregular soldiers, nearly all of them mounted. Napoleon, understanding the situation, ordered his men up and to prepare for battle. In a scene that can only be described as surreal, the pyramids of Giza, located only nine miles away, could be seen in the background, and Napoleon famously declared to his troops, quote, Soldiers, you came to this country to save the inhabitants from barbarism, to bring civilization to the Orient, and to subtract this beautiful part of the world from the domination of England. From the top of those pyramids, 40 centuries are contemplating you. His Eurocentric worldview about civilization notwithstanding, looking out at the tallest man-made structures in the world at the time, Napoleon stood in absolute amazement. Indeed, years later, he would recount that the pyramids were the one thing in his life that impressed him the most. He felt as though providence was beaming down on him at that very moment from the top of Giza. Then so it was. The Battle of the Pyramids had begun. But the battle itself wouldn't last long. In fact, it would be over in just over two hours. Napoleon, in a nearly identical strategy he had used at Chobrakeep, formed his 20,000 men into five division-sized squares, with artillery at the corners and the baggage, cavalry, and the savants, or scientists, inside. The five divisions advanced south in unison, the right flank and the left flank using the Nile River as a buffer. Each division was led by Generals Louis-Charles-Antoine Bachet, Jean-Louis Ebenezer Renéa, Charles-François-Joseph Dugois, Honoré Vial, and Louis-André Bon, respectively. Murad, on the other hand, had his right flank on the banks of the Nile, his left flank anchored at the nearby village of Bictil, and the cavalry was positioned in the center, which would turn out to be a disaster. The Mamluk reinforcements, on the other hand, stood across the Nile, unable to assist should the battle turn into a rout. <laughs> boy, oh boy, would it ever. The Mamluks decided to attack Dachet's and Rainier's division first, but they easily held their ground. Pointing their bayonets, the French jabbed at the horses, forcing them to rear back and throw their riders, who were then easily shot or stabbed to death by the French columns. The Mamluks, albeit ignorant of the Western battle tactics and likely the technology as well, just had no idea of what kind of fight they were in. They fought with medieval tactics, and they didn't even understand the modern battle engagements. In one episode, a Mamluk rider, known as a Mubarizon, rode into within only a few steps from the French lines and demanded a duel. The French responded in kind by shooting him dead. It was basically like pitting a high school football team against an NFL squad. There just was no chance. 
The rest of the attacks followed a similar outcome. The Mamluks would attack the French division, they would repel with bayonet stabs to the horses or musket fire to the infantry, and the Mamluks would retreat. Many of them retreated into the Nile, throwing themselves in there only to drown in the chaos. It was an utter annihilation. The French lost just under 300 men, many of them as a result of friendly fire due to the close quarter fighting, while the Mamluks would lose over 10,000. Outnumbered nearly 3 to 1, Napoleon saw the Mamluk forces and nothing more than a pimple on his backside. Annoying, but easily dealt with. And to add insult to injury, many of the Mamluk soldiers carried their life savings with them into battle, and the French, never once to pass up treasure and booty, suddenly became well-paid conquerors. As Berthier put it succinctly, quote, our brave men were amply compensated for the trouble that they had experienced. And suddenly, the low morale quickly disappeared. The Battle of the Pyramids was, for all intents and purposes, the final seal of fate for the Ottoman administration in Egypt, ending nearly seven centuries of Mamluk administration in the country. After hearing of the defeat of his legendary cavalry, Murad Bey and his men fled Cairo and retreated to Syria, effectively sealing the French conquest of Egypt in less than a month. More importantly, though, the battle displayed on a grand scale the fundamental military and political decline of the Ottoman Empire throughout the previous century when compared with contemporary European powers, especially France. The day following the battle, Napoleon entered Cairo unopposed. A city as large as Paris, and by far the largest on the African continent, Napoleon took it by merely walking through a city gate. After months of planning, deception, secrecy, and cunning to avoid British interference in their subsequent campaign, the Egyptian expedition was off to an auspicious start. But as Napoleon began to settle into Cairo and to reform the entire political and economic system of Egypt, the British were indeed lurking behind. And next week, we will finally meet the great Admiral Horatio Nelson as he inflicted one of the greatest defeats on Napoleon in his illustrious military career. Join us next week as we go into the legendary battle of the Nile. <laughs>